I originally wanted to talk about Nadi Shodhana, Pranayama, alternate nostril breathing, but there really is not as much good information out there that I felt I wanted to go too deep into it. I would say alternate nostril breathing is great. It works. It makes you feel relaxed, calm, and peaceful. And uh, I recommend you do it. I do it in, in different yoga uh, classes that I've been taking and taking online as I've not been going anywhere, but I've been taking them. <laughs> and uh, I find it very effective. So, and But at the same time, there was some kind of contradictory information about it from a science place and I was just I didn't feel like going into that box breathing Wim Hof people seem pretty sold about what's happening with it so people often mistake Tumo breathing which is the ancient Tibetan breath that gave Himalayan yogis the power to heat cold wet clothing dry they would heat it up till it's dry while sitting in the mountain snow uh, people mistake that with Wim Hof breathing they're not the same thing uh, the Rubin Museum actually funded Wim Hof to sit in a glass container full of ice outside the museum on the sidewalk. Uh, and they mistakenly claimed he was doing Tumo breathing, but he wasn't. Tumo breathing involves visualizations and other techniques not involved in Wim Hof's breathing, um, including things like movement of the pelvic floor muscles. So they're they're different. I mean, one's this ancient thing. One is very similar, but it's coming just from this Dutch guy's uh experience so before we get into anything Wim Hof related um gonna talk about this part gets really interesting this part blew my mind once I get to uh I gotta go over a couple things first but then it really did blow my mind so uh just so you know simple steady slow and deep breathing leads to lowered blood pressure more than listening to music for the same duration of time improved emotional states increased cognitive function including greater concentration and memory, less irritability and a reduction in addictive craving for things like cigarettes. Why? So there's a group of neurons called the locus coriolis, where your brain and spinal cord connect. The function of these neurons are rooted in attention and respiration. Two functions there, right? They light up strongly when you pay attention and they fire at a steady rate. They do the same in sync with your breath, specifically with the carbon dioxide levels in your blood. Okay, so that's not the part that blows your mind, but the thing to take away from there is when you have slow, steady breathing, there's neurons that are connected with attention in your brain that are going to light up and give you more capacity to focus. So slow down your breathing and steady it deeply, and you will find more focus and attention. So conscious breathing is wonderful for that. The part that blew my mind is this. Okay. Mouth breathing versus nostril breathing. I first heard about this from James Nestor's book, Breath. 30 to 50% of adults breathe through their mouth. This is horrible for you, like horrible. Like I didn't even realize how bad it was until the other night. <laughs> so mouth breathing can lead to snoring, sleep apnea, teeth, jaw, and abnormalities, gingivitis, tooth decay, asthma, bad breath, allergic reactions, and problem after problem after problem. It's a very long list at the end of the day. And it might just be infinite. Yeah, nose breathing, unlike mouth breathing, it filters particles, humidifies the air, makes it easier for your lungs to use, and produces and releases nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a vasodilator, just like the sauna is, right? It widens the blood vessels, makes it easier to increase blood flow through the brain, and through the body and to the brain, a critical movement for all of our organs. 
And it's actually being studied as a therapy right now to restore lung function and boost immunity in those suffering from COVID. So this is something that is produced and released naturally when you go through the nose and it won't happen in the mouth. So it's, I mean, at this moment in time too, the nose is a filtration and it produces a uh, vasodilator is being used to treat COVID. So at this point in time, more than ever, you better switch to nose breathing given the state of the world. So nasal breathing, it aids the immune system. It increases oxygen uptake and circulation and airflow to arteries, veins, and nerves. Slow nasal breathing and if possible through the diaphragm is essential to a calm state of mind. The nose will is most closely connected with the genitals more than any other organ. Learn this from James Nestor. It's covered in the same tissue. So when one area gets stimulated, the nose will become stimulated as well. Some people have too close of a connection where they get stimulated in their southerly regions. They start to uncontrollably sneeze. <laughs> and this condition is common enough that it was given a name called honeymoon rhinitis. Bizarre, right? Another thing that is really fascinating is that erectile tissue will pulse on its own. So it will close one nostril and allow breath in through the other nostril. Then that other nostril will close and allow breath in. Our bodies do this on their own. And the whole thing just gets more interesting, actually, because, well, a lot of people who study this believe that this is the way our bodies maintain balance. Because we breathe through our right nostril, circulation speeds up, and the body gets hotter, cortisol levels increase. The stress hormone, blood pressure increases. So breathing through the left will relax us more. So blood pressure will decrease, lowers the temperature, cools body, reduces anxiety. So our bodies are naturally doing this. And when we breathe through our mouths, we're denying our bodies the ability to do this natural alternate nostril breathing, right? The exhale is a parasympathetic response. Right now, you can put your hand over your heart. If you inhale very slowly in, you're going to feel your heart speed up. As you exhale, you should be feeling your heart slow down. So exhaling relaxes the body. And something else happens when we take a very deep breath like this. The diaphragm lowers and we take a breath in. And that sucks a bunch of blood, a huge perfusion of blood, into the thoracic cavity. As we exhale, that blood shoots out back through the body. Uh, you know, I, I've seen some contradictory information, like I mentioned before, about whether the left nostril and the right nostril does as much of what they're saying here but intuitively i feel it's true and you know do your own research with everything that i say don't accept anything i say is truth uh although i did my best and then this is another thing that just this really really blew my mind i had i was like i thought this was quite profound i had come across a photo of george catlin who was a painter of native american tribes in the 1800s the night before and i don't know why and it wasn't related to this at all. It just, it wasn't. It was just something else that led me to. And then I came across an article. So there was a tribe called the Mandan tribe. And uh, they have this extremely intense ceremony called the Okima ceremony, I believe is what it's called. I'm, this part I did not write down. I'm trying to recall it off the top of my head. So double check that. But uh, it's very similar to the Lakota Sundance and the film, uh, I believe, called A Man Called Horse they kind of depict an aspect of the okima ceremony it's super intense brutal they basically uh, string you up 
with hooks in your skin and then once you rip out of it they cut your finger off and then you have to drag a bunch of buffalo skulls attached to your body for many miles and they allowed george catlin to sit in and watch this anyways just to share that as a tidbit it's a pretty interesting group of people that from what it seems like are not around anymore um, but george catlin said they were of the most beautiful and striking people he ever came across anywhere ever uh just profound physical specimens of people he met them on the great plains and they attributed their perfect health and physique including perfect dental health and shape which george catlin specified in his writing they said it was the great secret of life which was breath and only through the nose and he even wrote a sh george catlin wrote a short book on the health practices of the 150 tribes that he visited over the course of 30 years and the book was called shut your mouth and save your life i mean that's how much he was impacted by that simple teaching right and uh i was blown away by this because it's like i first learned about this from science and then it turns out that the native americans knew this forever and the knowledge got passed to somebody in the western world who is very famous i mean his works all over the smithsonian and then he wrote a book about it and shared it all as much as he could and and yet this knowledge is like only now re-emerging as something new and then when you we're, i'm going to get into it like why it's so profound but like my question is why is this something that we're totally oblivious to i don't seem to understand that given that it was shared so who knows? A lot of reasons, I'm sure. So uh, just to talk a little about George Catlin before we, like, you know, um, make him a hero or something. Uh, this is a quote from Richard West, the director of Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian and himself a member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. He said, a native person is challenged, I think, not to feel on some level a profound resentment towards Catlin. There's no question he was exploiting Indians in the West as a commodity. On the other hand, when I said the West, it's like the Western frontier. On the other hand, he was far ahead of his time in his empathy for Indians. Catlin swam against the tide to bring light information about the Indians that depicts them accurately as worthy human beings and worthy cultures. So just something to keep in mind, you know, that there's always multiple sides to situations and people and perspectives. Uh, so here's a couple quotes from Catlin's book, Shut Your Mouth and Save Your Life. I believe this is where these quotes came from. So infants among the various native tribes of America are reared in cribs or cradles with the back lashed to a straight board and by the aid of a circular concave cushion placed under the head. The head is bowed a little forward when they sleep, which prevents the mouth from falling open, thus establishing the early habit of breathing through their nostrils. I was soon made to understand both by their women and their medicine men that it was done to ensure their good looks and prolong their lives. The mother, instead of embracing her infant in her sleeping hours and the heated exhaustion of her body, places it at arm's length from her in the cradle board and compels it to breathe the fresh air, the coldness of which generally prompts it to shut the mouth. The results of this habit are that the Indian adults invariably walk erect and straight, have healthy spines, and sleep on their backs. With robes wrapped around them, with the head supported by some rest, which inclines it forward, and their sleep is therefore always unattended with the nightmare or snoring. I personally have had crazy nightmares since I was a little kid, and so when I read this I was like, whoa, <laughs> I've tried virtually everything at least once 
in order to address this and all kinds of crazy things and all kinds of very rational things and nothing has really ever worked i am gonna see what happens with keeping my mouth closed while i sleep i will get into that uh in a moment once i finish here how that's done it's a funny way so uh he wrote, I, who have seen some thousands of Indian women giving their breasts to their infants, never saw an Indian mother withdrawing the nipple from the mouth of a young infant without carefully closing its lips with her fingers. The infant, breathing the natural and wholesome air, generally from instinct, closes its mouth during sleep, and in all cases of exception, the mother enforces nature's law until the habit is fixed for life. When I've seen a poor Indian woman in the wilderness lowering her infant from the breast and pressing its lips together as it falls asleep, fixed its cradle in the open air, and afterwards looked into the Indian multitude for the results of such a practice, I have said to myself, glorious education, such a mother deserves to be the nurse of emperors. He wrote, no person on earth who has waked from a fit of nightmare will dispute the fact that when consciousness came he found his mouth and throat wide open and parched with dryness every attack of the nightmare proclaim is the beginning of death though the spasm lasted but a minute death would have been the consequence how awful to be so near death and so often it is very evident that the back of the head should never be allowed in sleep to fall to a level with the spine here he's talking about sleeping posture but it should be supported by a small pillow to elevate it a little without raising the shoulders or bending the back, which should always be kept straight. When you lay your head upon a pillow, advance it a little forward so as to imagine yourself in a gallery of a theater looking into the pit. He continues, Lying on the back is thought by many to be an unhealthy practice and a long habit of sleeping in a different position from infancy to old age. But the general custom of the savage races, obviously that's a totally outdated and racist word, but that's what he wrote, of sleeping in this position from infancy to old age affords very conclusive proof that it can, if commenced in early life, it is the healthiest for a general posture that can be adopted. The proverb, as old and unchangeable as their hills amongst North American Indians, my son, if you would be wise, open first your ear, your eyes, your ears next, and last of all your mouth, that your words may be words of wisdom and give no advantage to thine adversary. Silence is the cornerstone of character. Guard your tongue in youth, said the old chief Wabasha, and in age you may mature a thought that will be of service to your people. Powerful stuff to reflect upon there so the way that you um keep your mouth shut at night is you tape it and you can buy a specific mouth tape i literally bought some spent 10 bucks for 120 strips <laughs> got it today i'm gonna try it tonight and i'm curious to see if my entire life transforms because i tape my mouth shut and people report very good results from it it's not a hocus pocus thing and it seems to work and based off simultaneous the science and the indigenous teaching behind it it's hard to doubt it right so lack of oxygenation or nourishment to cranial tissues and organs and improper drainage of waste products through the lymphatic system in turn cause nerve conduction issues hormonal imbalances and negative effects on brain functions and mental clarity wow breathing through the nose is important that's what <laughs> sum that up saliva ph drops become acidic in mouth breathing a forward head posture can develop 
which in turn causes spinal misalignments, fatigue, and fibromyalgia. The upper jaw also becomes underdeveloped, affecting the eyesight and facial aesthetics and further narrowing the nasal passages, which do not function properly. So mouth breathing can further depress the development of the upper jaw, and this underdevelopment is the main cause of mouth breathing in the first place. With an underdevelopment of the upper jaw due to poor nutrition before conception and in utero, obstruction of the nasal passages sets the stage for sleep apnea. Uh, with mouth breathing, the lungs cannot oxygenate properly, thereby affecting the heart and even setting the stage for cancer. Cancer thrives in anaerobic environment, thus having an underdeveloped facial structure negatively affects every cell in your body. 60 to 70% of the population is said to breathe through their mouth when they sleep at night. So it might be worth just trying it for a little while, a couple months, and seeing what happens. I'm going to try it, and I'll see what happens. The next uh, breathwork thing we're going to talk about here is box breathing, also rever referred to as Samavritti Pranayama uh, in the Hindu yoga tradition. Uh, so box breathing is super simple. It's used in yoga, as obviously mentioned right there, and also it's used by Navy SEALs uh, when they're thrown into cold water, which they're uh, submerged into anywhere up to 30 minutes at a time from what I've heard. So uh, box breathing is basically consisting of adjusting the duration of your inhale and exhale, changing the ratio between durations. It's very simple. Um, so you might even practice uh, what they call an even ratio breathing. So you're breathing in the same amount of time you breathe out for, or you might breathe with a longer inhale than exhale or vice versa. Depending on which is longer, inhalation or exhalation, you will experience different effects. One activating a sympathetic response and the other activating a parasympathetic response. Once again, the sympathetic being like the flight or fight, the parasympathetic being the calming, meditative activation of your nervous system. So a longer hail or langhana in Sanskrit means uh, to lighten or diminish, will create the peaceful relaxation of the parasympathetic system, while a longer exhale, brahmana, uh, in Sanskrit meaning to expand will lead to excitation focus and alertness so both of these are beneficial depending on what you're looking for if you want to wake up early in the morning and get going sympathetic nervous system techniques are when you want to rely on more if you want to go to sleep you want to be in a more calm place parasympathetic techniques so uh, really simple uh, langhana breathing would be you inhale for three seconds then you hold no inhalation or exhalation for four seconds then you breathe out slowly for six seconds and then you hold that for three seconds and just repeat very simple and will bring you into a calming place uh, brahmana breathing for an alertness you'd want to inhale for six seconds and then exhale for excuse me you want to hold for three seconds then breathe out exhaling for three seconds and then hold for four seconds and repeat uh, you can <laughs> rewind that listen to it and try it if you'd like to it's extremely simple and it works great and this is also important breathing technique as I mentioned the Navy SEALs do this when they're put into cold water uh, this is the kind of breathing you want to do when you're in the cold plunge you do not want to do I repeat do not want to do the Wim Hof breathing in the cold plunge because Wim Hof breathing is while totally safe uh, it can cause you to pass out if you're sitting in your 
on your bed lying down or sitting somewhere where if you pass out and pillows or the floor then you're fine i mean it's not dangerous but if you're in cold water and you pass out you could drown uh, or if you're driving you could crash your car so obviously being conscientious of where you're doing these breath works is very important and some people have died actually from doing the wim hof breathing in water not many a few but it is a real thing so it's you know important to be, pay attention to those things so box breathing is what you want to do when you are in the water and it's great to counter the sympathetic response of panic you get when you're in the cold plunge and to train your stress response to uh, endure embrace and calm panic so the wim hof breathing is when you are preparing for the cold plunge so the Wim Hof breathing is really fascinating. There's a lot that's been done on it, and that's mainly because most people just thought he was totally insane, which uh, from a friend of mine who is friends with him, uh, firsthand account, he is totally insane. <laughs> Anyone that tries to climb Mount Everest wearing nothing but shorts is, for lack of a better word, a little crazy. Nonetheless, only crazy people really change the world, in my opinion, so I don't perceive that as actually a, uh, a negative adjective to describe someone by especially when you think about that quote by i think jay krishnamurti says uh to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society is no measure of sanity <laughs> so uh thank god for the people who are outliers in this world <laughs> they lead us back to where we're trying to get so the wim hof breathing is another thing that is you know it's been called wim hof breathing but he even says if you study it and listen to what he has to say it's really a very simple and ancient technique as well coming from the yoga traditions as well it's a combination of a kumbhaka which is basically breath retention along with bahasrika pranayama which is the bellows breath which is that deep belly breathing and so what you're focusing on here are your third chakra your solar plexus this is really about power and force and controlling adrenaline autonomic responses activating your sympathetic uh, nervous system and at the same time utilizing the parasympathetic so it's actually in a lot of ways kind of more of a balancing uh, of the two but ultimately you are flooding yourself with adrenaline when you're doing this breath work so I like to think of it as more of a sympathetic practice so the breathing method, independent of the cold water, creates a flood of adrenaline, as I was just mentioning. So it's theorized, and I don't know how accurate this is, but I've seen it in a couple places. They say that a seasoned practitioner can release as much adrenaline into the system as someone going bungee jumping. How on earth you could possibly manage to measure that, I don't really know. Probably wouldn't be that crazy, but I'm not sure if it's actually been done. The point is, you're doing you're releasing a lot of adrenaline through your system just by doing the breath work and then obviously we we're talking about with the cold plunge is doing it as well you're compounding it it's extremely powerful practice it's not subtle the moment you do it you feel it i haven't spoken to anyone that's tried it sincerely and not felt something from it and i think for a lot of people who are getting into spiritual practice this is something that's very appealing because you know i have a very established meditation practice for a very long time and i can say it, it takes a while to get it to a place where you start to understand what people are talking about and if you're in a culture of where delayed gratification is not really um, a center stone unfortunately is ours then this is a great practice to jump into because at least you can feel something right away and be like okay wow this works and i find that that's an important stepping stone into getting someone deeper into other practices where they go okay if this works what else works 
okay, because I'm really feeling something now. There is something about transformation of energy of the nervous system of consciousness and uh, unlocking, you know, this incredible power that we all hold because it is absolutely incredible when you step into it. I mean, the guy <laughs> climbed Mount Everest wearing nothing but shorts, not even shoes. Didn't make it to the top, but nonetheless, uh, I always thought to myself when I first came across it, if it could lead someone to do that, what will it lead me to do? I have different goals in my life, but that kind of drive and capacity and confidence and tenacity and power put in a certain direction, that can just change the world. So I encourage people to do it nonetheless. Um, so basically the way that the breathing of the Wim Hof method works is you're inducing a mild state of hypoxia. So hypoxia is not anything positive, but if you do it in a mild way, it's a relatively gentle stress on your system and that's nothing to be concerned about uh, so the self-induced stress triggers the sympathetic nervous system and then that floods the body with adrenaline so you put yourself intentionally under stress through breath work and that leads to the adrenals uh, getting flipped on so uh, without a breathing technique when you hold your breath you experience an intense urge to breathe obviously not because you're running out of oxygen though but because your carbon dioxide levels are too high so the first part of the wim hof method is to hyperventilate and it's recommended uh to do this from your belly as diaphragmatic breathing will activate the nerve the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic response in the body which makes you relax so what's happening is that we're reducing carbon dioxide levels as much as possible while simultaneously making ourselves really chilled out well, you know, hyperventilating, of course, so it's kind of an interesting dynamic there. But this hyperventilation shifts the blood pH from an acidic to an alkaline state. And, you know, I, the conversation about acidic and alkaline doing this uh, research kind of led me to some conflicting, you know, sources about all that stuff. So the premise of an alkaline state is that it's preventative towards ex excessive inflammation and diseases. Uh, but there's a lot of scientific research that seems to like contradict that that's true because they say that food diet doesn't affect the pH level of the blood. It only changes the pH content of your urine. Um, and they say that uh, through comprehensive studies that there's no conclusion between an alkaline system and cancer prevention and that cancerous tumors have been shown to grow in alkaline environments. The premise is that an alkaline diet includes healthier foods. But it's not because those foods are alkaline or that they're acidic that they contribute to your health. It's because they're just healthier. This being said, I haven't done enough research on this. I am not promoting one thing or another. The, the information is basically that an alkaline environment in your body seems to be positive. That's not a very scientific statement, but I'm not a scientist. So do your own research. I highly encourage people. That's my, my phrase these days with all the... the bullshit and nonsense that's going on in the world with everything always just do your own research uh, if you find contradictory information great roll with that and question yourself most importantly so anyways not to get too off topic about acidic and alkaline stuff just something to be aware of and to do more research about on your own time but uh, let's get back to the breath work so what does happen from hyperventilation and blood alkalinity is lightheadedness tingling through the body which is, they say, due to the lowering of available calcium ions in the blood, and removing free calcium ions increases muscle excitability. And this is also what happens in hypoglycemia, 
just some information there. I haven't broken all that down where I understand it more than what I just said to be transparent there. The second step though, here in the breathing technique of Wim Hof is to hold your breath as long as possible after you do 30 to 40 of those rapid hyperventilation inhale exhalations. And you wanna hold your breath as long as possible after you exhale all the air out. So oxygen becomes stuck to the blood with high alkalinity and this creates the mild state of hypoxia. Uh, and they say this is why the blood pH doesn't change with your diet because it would be dangerous. Um, the idea is that if food was changing your blood pH, then you would cultivate all these crazy diseases. So just some information there to research on your own if it's contradictory in your belief system. Uh, nonetheless, though, this mild state of epoxy, like I said before, it's not dangerous because it's really gentle. Uh, and then in this, this period of the breath hold, which is the kumbhaka, uh, it's decreasing the blood oxygen level to a very, very low level for just a short period of time. So generally, most people hold their breath on the first round, 45 seconds to a minute. Some people longer, depends on where you're at. And uh, what happens is that your body actually responds in a very positive way. So remember that in general, you can hold your breath until your blood carbon dioxide levels rise above a certain threshold, right? So after we reduce the carbon dioxide levels in the first step, we can hold our breath much longer than ordinarily if we hold our breath until the carbon dioxide levels eventually rise that high. So for some people, after a couple rounds of doing this, you can hold your breath easily for three to four minutes. And just from like my own anecdotal experience, you're in a pretty blissed high state while this is happening. And it's because you're getting flooded with adrenaline. And that in itself is, is a really powerful high. And it's also has a at the same time, this is an anecdotal thing. There's a calming effect as well. It's like a stimulating calm because you're in this place of tension, but also meditation while it's happening. It's, it's very powerful for shifting you out of anything that you're stuck in in that moment. And uh, it's, yeah, it's something that you just have to try to really understand that a little more. But so when your body's using up the oxygen through the retention of the kumbhaka, uh, after about one minute, your blood oxygen is lower than it normally can get. When the oxygen levels drop, far enough, it triggers the body to do a couple of powerful things. So after 90 seconds, a huge burst of adrenaline, epinephrine, is produced, but you remain in the meditation while this sympathetic flight or fight response of adrenaline occurs. So you're training your stress response. It can allow you to rewire fears, anxiety, and you're learning to meet your own system of panic with steadfastness instead of running away or panicking. If everything I said up until now confused you, just remember this. Once you have the kumbhaka and the stress response of adrenaline coming through your system, if you can meet it with calmness and a meditative composure, you are literally rewiring all the patterns of the deepest level in your fear of your anxiety, of your panic, and changing them to be in a place of calmness and composure and equanimity. It's extremely powerful. I mean, the potential for what that can do to shift things in someone's life, I really think is uh, limitless. So that's been my own experience. It's radically changed my own life and how I deal with things that ordinarily would cause anxiety or stress. You're able to say, okay, I can just be calm in this. And it's not just like an intellectual practice, right? It's you're literally able through your nervous system, through the power of your mind and your conscious will, because this is very much a practice of uh, will strength. And the will is a muscle, right? So we're training it. 
it's kind of like you think about uh, a screaming baby or a really panicking dog and how you can put your hand on them really firmly but calmly and settle them down to a place of like, okay, just breathe. This is what you're doing to yourself. You're just going, just breathe. Even though everything in your system and your biology is saying panic, you're saying no. And the irony of what I just said, there's just breathe because actually you're holding your breath in the practice, but it translates when you're outside of the practice to that calmness of just breathe, relax, be present with what's happening. And uh, this hypo there's a hypoxic inducible factor 1A gene that becomes expressed when this happens. And this allows the body to make adjustments to better thrive in a low oxygen environment, which is why, you know, just doing a little bit of this breath work, Wim Hof was able to take people who have no mountaineering experience up to Mount Kilimanjaro. And I don't recall how fast they got to the top. It was in re record time and they should not have been able to do it. And they were able to do it easily. And they all should have been dead. Um, if you listen to the book and the talks about it, it's really profound. It realizes, you realize that there's so much that you can tap into within yourself just through the power of your breathing and that it's not something that you have to be superhuman he was taking people up who were suffering from autoimmune diseases cancer and things like that people who are out of shape and what happens is essentially is you're training your system to just function in overdrive but at the same time in a way that's composed and to thrive in that way in an environment that really should have killed them and they were able to do it, and he's been able to do that with a lot of people. So uh, at the very least, most of us are not climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, but at the very least to learn this as a skill for who knows what kind of situation you might find yourself in, given the times we live in, I would recommend this to be a very valuable practice to learn. It's incredibly simple, right? So the third step of the breath is to take a recovery breath. You just inhale really deep after you can't hold it anymore. You're like, I'm about to just, whoa, a lot of pressure happening at this moment. And then you hold that breath in for 15 seconds. And then this resets the body's oxygen levels. And at this point, you definitely start to feel really high from the power of the adrenaline and the relaxation from releasing the hold of the parasympathetic nervous system. All right. So my teacher, my Manuel, has this talk. He says, you know, yogis and shamans love stress and this is a scientific explanation as to why is that when you're in that process of holding 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 and there's tension tension and stress and then suddenly you let go as we were talking about before the body's systems are like yo-yos right when one is being expressed uh the other one kicks into action so what we're doing here is we're we're activating like bliss and and pleasure and relaxation by moving towards its opposition so the next step, if you were to keep going with this breath work, is just to begin the process of hyperventilation again, uh, which further activates the parasympathetic response if you continue to do diaphragmatic breathing. So once again, I'll simplify it here. You hyperventilate from your belly 30 to 40 times, then exhale everything out, hold it for as long as you can, inhale when you're about to just pass out, not literally, hold that for 15 seconds, and then let it out and then start over again i find three to five rounds is ideal and you can do this pretty much as much as you want i haven't heard anyone overdoing it where it's created problems generally i've found within myself there's just a moment where you feel like complete with it i did it for an hour straight one time and i didn't notice any negative benefit any negative effects from that it felt really clear 
and uh, it immediately does some radical, powerful things to your health. So not just training your stress response, but more red blood cells are produced so the body can transport oxygen more efficiently in the future. So you'll feel like you have more energy. And obviously we were talking about before uh, blood flow to the brain being a pivotal thing for your health and your system's capacity to function at a high level. As we were talking before, you can acclimatize to higher altitudes because uh, you now have additional red blood cells. Stem cells are able to move more easily around the body to help with neural repair and anti-aging effects. The body also produces more mitochondria, the part of the cell that produces and creates energy because it's preparing in case it needs to perform anaerobic respiration in the future. A spike in interleukin-10, which is a super powerful and anti-inflammatory cytokine, which is in link with the production of adrenaline. So cytokines are proteins that control the immune system and blood cells, and interleukin-10 specifically has been shown to almost entirely suppress the inflammatory response to illnesses such as the E. coli endotoxin. There's a really good, short, simple well animated uh, video on YouTube about the study where they injected everyone to 300 people with an E. coli endotoxin, meaning it's a weakened version of the bacteria where it gives you the symptoms but not really the sickness. So people get messed up or just for a short period of time. Everyone got sick except Wim Hof who was injected with it. And they were like, oh, you just must be superhuman and who cares about your breath work? And he says, no, I'll show you. He takes 10, 12 people, trains them for a week or something. They come back do the same experiment, none of them get sick. And I believe they repeated it, I think, one more time. And the conclusion is basically that this breath work is activating interleukin-10. And interleukin-10 is as powerful enough to push away things like E. coli. So in the time of COVID, uh, we should all be learning this breath work just to keep ourselves in a place of high vibration and immune capacity. So... The increased adrenaline also increases the white blood cell count, which allows us to fight off disease and infection. Uh, and so this is pretty profound because what this means is that this breathing method allows us to consciously and immediately, like instantly, powerfully boost our immune system with an increased production of white blood cells. Uh, but that the inflammation response which can cause an infinite number of health problems is also simultaneously suppressed. So this is the first time objective scientific evidence has uncovered that a human being can influence their immune system. Something ancient traditions have always known, but in all honesty, does anyone and like really think about it, does anyone here who's listening know of any other technique that is so simple uh, and can work this powerfully and is immediately accessible by someone with literally zero training in anything related to yoga, meditation, health, or wellness. Uh, I mean, there's Tumo breathing and other practices, but a lot of those are, I think, require quite a bit of training and esoteric, metaphysical understanding of the universe. And this is something that's just like, it's really... It's really raw. It's stripped down. It's breathe in really fast. Hold your breath. Recover. Do it again. It's not really very complicated, and anyone can do it. And it's just been proven over and over again through incredible scrutiny to work. So I think it's it's profoundly like revolutionary. I mean, like that. Uh, 
anyone can access this. And at the same time, it's ancient knowledge. I mean, there's lots of yogis that have been known to live in caves and do all kinds of crazy things in the snow and whatnot. But like I said, that's not really very accessible to most people. And it's oftentimes obscured with a lot of other jargon and dogma and uh, just difficult things to rift through while this is very simple. So this is particularly profound with anyone with an autoimmune disorder because in an autoimmune disorder, antibodies are suppressed to neutralize pathogens uh, which begin to attack the body itself. So an example of an autoimmune disorder, type 1 diabetes, Lyme disease, multiple sclerosis, asthma, fibromyalgia, and rheumatoid arthritis. I think I know someone with at least... Uh, I know multiple people who have at least one of these. So it, they're very common. And uh, doing something as simple as this breath work can not necessarily cure them of the problem, but it can start to give them a wedge to tap into their own system and how it's working and begin to at least push back against the process as opposed to just feel like you're a victim and you have to take a drug or do some kind of other crazy thing. This is like, okay... There's a very simple breathwork technique, and it's been proven to work. And the anecdotal evidence of people with these conditions who have disciplined themselves to practice this method have found it to be tremendously helpful. And I believe for some people reverse the conditions, and for most people, it has at the very least allowed them to deal with it in a way that they never thought would have been possible before. So like we said, the release of interleukin-10, the cytokine, through the breathwork and the mastery over the stress response and other autonomic functions of the system can lead to a profound reduction in autoimmune symptoms for people. So as much as I can, when I find people who struggle with these things, I just try to mention the breathing technique to them. I find it's important not to push things on people because otherwise they're just not interested. There's a residual backlash. Ram Das would always talk about that. It's important to share information, but at the same time, it's like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink, right? So uh, there was a, we're going to talk a little about cold exposure and breathwork combined. There was a study done at Wayne State University where they measured Wim Hof and normal people in response to the cold using an MRI and a CAT scan. So with the measurement of the MRI in his brain, there was a demonstrated spike of activity in the periaqueductal area of the brain. It's a region of gray matter located in the brain stem. It's abbreviated PAG. This is the primary region in the brain responsible for pain reduction. Analgia is what I have written here, and I'm not pronouncing that right. <laughs> it's uh, autonomic reactions to stress and injury that the PAG regulates and the production of fear and defense mechanisms. This is, in essence, the way I interpret it as like the reptilian brain. It's really deep in the system, it's in the brain stem, and rarely do we have a conscious interaction with it. There was an experiment in the 1970s where they stimulated the PAG in rats, and they were able to operate on the rats without anesthesia, and the rats did not demonstrate any experience of pain. This is a very powerful part of the brain, and there's a good reason why it's difficult to access consciously, right? What would happen if we were not feeling pain. I actually had a friend in high school had a condition. I don't know what the name of it was, but he literally did not feel physical pain. It was really, sounds kind of like crazy, right? But uh, it was true. And 
on some way you could think, oh, it's a blessing, but actually not because things would happen like you would break a bone and wouldn't know about it. And there's all kinds of conditions and things that would occur because he wouldn't be aware of what's happening in the body. And uh, oftentimes people with that condition don't live very long. And interesting with him, he actually had a total mental breakdown. And last I heard, he was put in an institution. And yeah, it was a crazy condition. He was a football player. And I remember he was, he was really good because it was just like he just got hit and just didn't matter. Really interesting person. Uh, anyways, so the activation of the PAG through the combined force of adrenaline from cold exposure and breath work is thought to be the reason Wim Hof has been able to withstand the pain of sub-zero temperatures and water for multiple hours. The PAG is thought to be activated during the placebo effect, which is where we experience a top-down from our nervous system, our brain, overriding the experience of pain and otherwise autonomic functions. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about two placebo effect stories in relationship to pain that I thought were just like totally mind-blowing. Um, and I think there's some really powerful things that we can take away from it. So in 1995, a 29-year-old construction worker had a 7-inch nail pierced through his foot. He cried out in extreme pain. He was taken to the ER in an ambulance, sedated with opioids, and then they took the boot off and they discovered the nail missed his foot completely. There was no injury whatsoever. What happened, though, was his thoughts, beliefs, and emotions about the situation signaled his brain to release pain and fear as a neurochemical response to keep him safe from a perceived threat. Because that's the thing, right? Pain is like a safety response. In the case of my friend, that was the danger of it. He wasn't able to feel pain, but then his, he wasn't able to keep himself safe. And nonetheless, he had a crazy breakdown. So he, this is really interesting, right? You, you think something happens to you and your body suddenly goes into the same neurochemical situation as if something actually did happen to you. On the flip side, there was another construction worker, Patrick Lawler of Colorado, this guy accidentally discharged a nail gun in his face. I'm just laughing because that just sounds crazy, right? <laughs> and it resulted in a mild toothache and a bruise under his jaw. He didn't notice any other symptoms and assumed it was just a minor mishap and the nail had ricocheted elsewhere or it something, right? He was like, oh, whatever, I just got bruised in the face. Six days later, during that time where he had slept, ate, went to work, and functioned totally normally, he went to the dentist to get it checked out just to be you know, sure it was okay. And the dentist discovered by an x-ray there was a four-inch nail lodged in his brain in his cerebral cortex. And it needed to be removed immediately because it was at risk of killing him. It was like millimeters away from some very important parts of his system. And he felt no pain from the experience other than some minor soreness. So... Let's look at, I mean, let's think about that, right? There's some important takeaways. One, just because something hurts does not mean you are actually in harm. Pain is a guesstimation by your brain. It's not an accurate reflection of the severity of the situation. Two, cognitive, emotional, and contextual factors like excitement, distraction, pleasure, and attentional processes constantly regulate and define your experience of pain. Three, true effective pain treatment and management has a significant to do with control over our attitude and mindset. 
which can profoundly reshape our visceral and physiological experience of pain. This is why the three pillars of the Wim Hof Method are cold exposure, breathwork, and mindset. Cultivation of an attitude of mental toughness is as important neurologically speaking as jumping in a cold plunge, pranayama, ayahuasca, or whatever discipline or practice you do. And I just, it's, this, to me, this is like, this is such a powerful thing to understand. Just because something hurts doesn't mean there's something wrong. And I remember playing sports growing up. This was something that we always had to learn to do playing contact sports growing up. Uh, you just have to realize that like, okay, there's pain there, but like I can keep going. I don't need to let this limit me. Th that's the message of this. Don't let pain limit you. Just because something hurts in life doesn't mean you need to limit yourself. Doesn't mean you need to stop. Doesn't need mean you are going in the wrong direction. And the cold plunge hurts like we were talking about but it's actually going in the right direction. I think that this is like just such a gem of information to reflect upon in our own life. How often we shy away from painful things. Pain is just one of the best teachers there is. Most of us just don't want to sit in the class. And then this other aspect that like excitement, distraction and things like that can really define, you know, how the experiences sometimes something really bad can happen it was a nail going into your brain is pretty bad but if you're in a different mental state about it it might not really affect you at all so that's the other aspect what story are you telling yourself about your pain are you telling yourself that when bad things happen to you oh my god it's so horrible i'm such a victim of my circumstances and this is so terrible. Can look at my situation. Or are you saying, yeah, uh, I'll be okay. I'll shake it off. <laughs> I'm going to keep working for six days. That doesn't matter. I got a nail in my brain. <laughs> Not that, I mean, obviously that guy didn't know, which is why it happened, but we can take the teaching of it is like, if something happens to you in a mess and it's like, that should hurt, but you choose to say, no, I'm okay. You can find willpower and capacity to just overcome that profound liberation is at your hands just through the mental toughness your attitude how you think about pain will literally impact how you viscerally experience it so be extraordinarily conscientious of what stories you tell yourself about how much something hurts and how bad it is and then on top of that, what it means, because something might hurt really bad and be this or that, but you might say, you know what, it's okay, it's good medicine. Like that might be the thing that allows you to overcome whatever shortcoming or addiction or character flaw or relationship disharmony, whatever process that you're faced with, the obstacle, that change in the story and how you consciously control your perception and your experience of life might be the thing that leads you to profound transcendence or leads you to total drudgery homelessness and craziness and blah 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 all the negative things we want to avoid in life we could talk a lot about this for like many hours i feel like i could just do a whole podcast just about the the spiritual teachings of like what this story is indicating to us and it's not just oh construction work is dangerous because obviously it is <laughs> but mental toughness like that's just something that i think is not spoken enough about 
in what you call new age spirituality, if you look at indigenous cultures, they're, they're rooted in mental toughness and that's why they've survived and persevered for so long and why uh, a very weak-minded Western culture is now turning to them for guidance. Because mental toughness is what defines your whole reality in a certain way. Like things are going to happen to you. Things might not even happen to you, and if you're and if you're not mentally tough, you will turn it into a crazy situation where you have to go to the hospital, and then nothing, and then you find out nothing happened to you. <laughs> so learning to control your mind, right? Learning to control your mind as to what's happening, and that's why this practice, right, of the breath work, of going into cold water, of exposing yourself to the elements, of training yourself with the elements, of fasting exposing yourself to discomfort constantly you just listen to the people who've all accomplished great things in their life and found that they were able to accomplish their goals and and oftentimes they were insurmountable the things that they had to overcome and they all say the same thing it's repetitive it's almost pointless but at the same time each time you hear a person say it, it there's something profound about it which is you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and i was watching a documentary yesterday on uh Dilgo Kinsei Rinpoche, uh, teacher of the Dalai Lama, and one of the monks was saying, you know, we've all heard this thing about to be attached, be mindful, be compassionate. But when you hear that person say it, it's like hearing it for the first time. It just motivates you so deeply. And you go, yes, this is the way. This is the way. And I find when I've, I've listened to a lot of talks by people who've accomplished extraordinarily challenging things and under ridiculously painful, horrific circumstances. And they all say the same thing about becoming comfortable in the discomfort learning to love the misery it's it's like it's funny because it's really not a secret but at the same time few people stick it out through that exposure to pain or discomfort that at a certain level it has remained a secret but you listen to any real teacher any real accomplished person of any field they will all say the same thing this is the aspect of discipline. And then this is a neurological context for why it works is because of how the brain modulates pain. It, it's not based on quote unquote reality. It's not something that's fixed. You have a choice. You can decide how much something hurts. You can decide what that means. Does it break you or does it allow you to move forward? So I want to talk a lot more about that, but uh, that will be another time. So in respect to cold exposure on the body, coming back to this study at Wayne State University with Wim Hof, the CAT scan demonstrated during cold exposure that there are intercostal muscles between the ribs that chew up glucose, sugar in the body, like crazy, in Wim Hof specifically, to release heat and stabilize his core body temperature and even sustain the skin temperature, regardless of the cold exposure preventing frostbite. So... Uh, the unfortunate news with all this, on some level, but also perhaps motivating, is that both the activation of the PAG and the simultaneous stimulation of the intercoastal mu costal muscles is something that really only comes through committed practice and cannot be accessed upon first try. Uh, as opposed to, for instance, the conscious activation of the immune response through the breath work releasing interleukin-10. So what this means is that you know, for myself personally, having done lots of cold plunges, over 300 in the past year, easily, probably almost double that. And I still find that I get cold, 
and I have experiences of pain that are really overwhelming, even with some minor things. And uh, yeah, all these things are a process, you know. It's important to understand, like I said, that this is not about instant gratification and that we have been conditioned to perceive and operate life in that lens and it's not healthy. I don't recommend it. Although there are things like the breath work that do activate that. Ultimately, to be able to sit in ice for two hours and not die, that is something that would take a lot of time and effort. And in a lot of ways, I don't actually think it's really worth it. One thing that I've, I've learned from doing a lot of cold exposure, heat exposure, and many other practices in my life is that fundamentally what we are searching for is really balance and equanimity. And that trying to max out and be the best at something is more of an ego trip than anything else. And really what you want to do is find where your system can get out of its comfort zone, be challenged, experience growth, and then resituate itself at a higher plateau of balance. And that doesn't require hours and a cold exposure or something like that. A simple two minutes or something along those lines will do just a wonderful job. So I encourage people to go gently and slowly and do not go crazy. I have done both and I found that the middle way is more effective. Who would have guessed? So just a few other things to talk about. Uh, movement. So remember uh, cardiovascular exercise such as running and dancing activate the endocannabinoid system, which causes a release in Ananda Mind and weightlifting does not. Uh, however, being that I was an athlete my first something like 18 years of my life, uh, done lots of weightlifting and Doing research on it led me to start doing it again. Just a couple simple, wonderful things about weightlifting that a lot of people maybe wouldn't guess because I think it has a negative connotation with just being like kind of a meathead. <laughs> when it's funny because it actually has the opposite effect. So weightlifting has been shown to increase BDNF and neurogenesis, protecting uh, neurological health, promoting memory, mental efficiency, emotional well-being, and executive function, the top-down capacity of your brain to regulate your entire system, make good decisions, be balanced, and so on and so forth. So actually, lifting weights does not make you a meathead. It actually strengthens your capacity for intelligence and higher cognitive capacity. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Uh, lowers your blood sugar, strengthens your bones, reduces overall inflammation, increases blood circulation to the body and brain, which prevents cognitive decline and mental emotional disorders and strengthens the heart. It protects the body from injury. This was actually one of the huge things that just got me into doing it. Uh, working on a computer is just totally whack and moving to upstate New York and being outside a lot, found it necessary to uh, fortify everything that I was doing with all the labor on the farm and other service work and construction things, just doing, you know, 30 minutes of weightlifting might be the thing that keeps you out of the hospital. I've seen a lot of people get wrist injuries and things like that, and then they're totally disabled. And just a little bit of, uh, you know, strengthening your bones and the muscles that are supporting them and everything else can be a life-saving thing in a lot of ways. Uh, weightlifting also improves your balance, promotes longevity, and if you enjoy it, it will increase your dopamine by 200%. So it's pretty amazing. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of, I was thinking about it, and this is just my own philosophical speculation about it. 
weightlifting is kind of like a new thing in a lot of ways, spiritually speaking. It's it doesn't really have a place in spiritual, the spiritual world because I think there's a lot of vanity associated with it, where people are like, oh, I'm gonna look really good, you know, and and just to say it too, but you know, having a positive body image is actually a very beneficial thing, I think, but. I think a lot of people feel averse towards it because there's a superficial aspect of like, I just want to look good, right? And that's affiliated with that kind of thing. But when you think about it, if it's doing all this stuff to your physical system, it's having a profound effect on your consciousness as well. I mean, everything's intertwined, right? Your your physical, emotional, mental, spiritual systems are all interlinked in this way. So you tweak one, the rest of them are going to follow suit. And personally, I found that my capacity to be a more peaceful, a more loving, a more compassionate, a more mindful, and a more calm person after lifting weights is dramatically increased. And like I said, it's a relatively new phenomenon. I don't think yogis were back in the day, you know, lifting tons of weights. It just wasn't really a thing. Of course, obviously, yogic postures, you get very strong when you hold certain ones of them and really defined in a lot of ways. But it's interesting just to think about it. in a certain level, spiritually speaking, it's not really something that has been adopted nor studied traditionally yet i can say from having done lots of different spiritually oriented practices that for myself personally listening to music and lifting weights uh is a very empowering and activating practice and i feel really good and i don't i haven't felt negative effects from it in any way i haven't felt like oh i'm super egotistical after lifting weights or something like that it's just been like i feel really balanced and then i'm able to approach everything else in my life with a lot more balance and flow so anyway it's just food for thought there the next practice of movement i want to talk about is one that is something that i just think like is god bless me special and incredibly simple it's just running uh Running is just, for, I have found since the quarantine has happened has been just a life-saving activity for myself. So a couple of wonderful things about running. It promotes longevity. It improves immunity. It increases BDNF and neurogenesis, reduces the risk of cancer, improves mental health, lowers blood pressure, improves circulation. And there's actually a lower prevalence of hip and knee arthritis around active marathon runners than non-marathon runners. And arthritis is actually not connected with running and is caused more, they say, by family history, age, and surgical history. And they found, ironically to what you would think, the more people ran, the less likely it was found that they suffered from knee problems in a study with nearly 3,000 participants. I've heard so many people since I've started running and I was telling them, like, oh, I don't run because of my knees. And now I'm kind of thinking, maybe you should run because your knees. Obviously, you would do it very gradually and you would choose the terrain consciously and wear the right shoes and so on and so forth and go for the right duration. But something to think about, right? This It's the same thing. Like, why would the cold water be good for you? Oh, don't go outside. You're going to get a cold. It's like, actually, you should go outside. Otherwise, you will get a cold. Actually, you should run a marathon. Otherwise, you will have knee problems and arthritis. So what I like about studying science is that a lot of times uh, what you think the opposite would be good for you is the case so interesting to think about running lowers the risk of cataracts and vision problems it also strengthens your bones obviously stimulates overall cognition including learning and memory it allows for better sleep and it activates the endocannabinoid system flooding your system with the bliss chemical and not a mind uh, the runner's high and it can increase dopamine by 200 percent i personally have found that after running 
anywhere from two to five miles, I am in a completely altered state of consciousness, like deeply altered. <laughs> I, I, and to the point where I'm like kind of amazed at it. I'm just like, whoa, this is like some kind of other trip, man. Being in the forest, blasting music alone in nature, especially when it's cold outside, and your system is, is getting activated in that way. Uh, like the capacity to face the day and the challenges that arise and to be able to clear headed and to have what I would just share as an experience of the mystical. Uh, it's a guaranteed every time. And yeah, you know, it's one of those things that's like, I can't really articulate fully my own inner experience of it but i would say every time i run within two minutes i'm just like instantly brought to this place of extreme empowerment and vision and understanding and guidance and trust and flow and i think a lot of people have this experience with it and what i think is really wonderful is that you know just 30 minutes of it is more than enough uh and what's cool is if you have more time i have a child now so i don't have as much time as i did before you could just keep going just keep running and you know it's a wonderful thing it just gets you out of your out of your routine it brings you into contact with nature with clean air and shows you your own inner strength there's a lot more to be sure about it but uh better you just go do it and try it and for the record i used to hate running couldn't stand it i hated it so much playing sports my whole life i hated running and now i love running i look forward to the moment i can just run the release of energy i was listening to Sadhguru's book on karma and he's talking about how at their centers they have a lot of work where they just have people do tons of physical work so they can get this mass release of energy which in a sense is a hatha yoga practice for bringing them into a place where they can receive a more intense download it's like the light bulb needs to be strengthened to hold the wattage of the consciousness that's coming through so just being physically active is crucial for that and uh, i've personally found that running in and of itself is such a explosion of energy that comes off of your system and through your system and to say it elevates consciousness and transforms your entire day is a radical radical understatement Thank you.